A time is coming when nations will rise against nations. Famines will dry the world. Earthquakes will shake the foundations of the earth. A time of great evil and of great distress. The beginning of the end of the world. The end of time. The end of sin. Then, when no one expects, heaven will open. Jesus will return. The earth will be made new. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So keep watch and be ready for the beginning of the end. Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you for all of you that are watching online. We're so grateful that you've tuned in and we love it that you're here every single week. And we thank God for you. Thank you for being a part of this service today. Hey, I gotta tell you guys something. Something amazing happened last week. We had 4,200 people in person, in person last Sunday with all of the campuses. And I bring this up only because I want to say I think it was a breakthrough. I think there were a lot of people that decided I'm coming back in person on Easter Sunday. And we're hoping that this begins a new pattern in their life. We want everybody back. We're thanking God for the thousands of people that Sunday that were online and that you were a part of the service. But I got to tell you, we want you back. We want you home, and we know, we know you're going to be back. You're going to be, it'll be a time that you feel comfortable, and we understand that, and you take your time, but we're hoping that everybody begin to pray, God, when is that time for me? When is it time that you want me to come back in person and be a part of the service? Because I want to tell you something, being with friends, being in a service where we're singing together and praising God together, I mean, there's nothing like it, and I would love it. Begin to pray and think, God, when is it that you want me to be back in person at Sugar Creek? We're beginning a new series today that is entitled The Beginning of the End. And most of it's going to come from the book of Revelation, but not all of it. We're also going to be taking some passages of Scripture that are found throughout the New Testament. And next Sunday is one of those. What we're going to do is take a look at what God teaches us in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. And Jesus, let me tell you what the world will be like just as I come. Back. So we're going to take the words of Jesus. What is going to be the description of the world at the time that Jesus comes back? And he tells, he tells us what that is. I think you're going to be shocked. I mean, seriously, as you walk through the words of Jesus and you compare the description that he gives to us with what is happening today, I think you're going to be floored. Whatever you do, don't miss next Sunday. And then we're going to take what else the Bible teaches about this return of Jesus Christ. Most of it coming from the book of Revelation. Now that word revelation actually means to be unveiled. 
Think about it this way. Let's say a city decides we want to have a sculptor build some sculpture that is really important to our city so that the person, he or she goes about doing that. When they're finished, uh, they make the announcement and there is some sort of a ceremony, you know, and people arrive that this really matters a great deal to. And there it is, but it is veiled. It has this sheet over it, a veil over it. And there's a little speech that is made and then somebody pulls the rope and the veil comes off and there it is. There is the masterpiece. Well, the book of Revelation, the word means the unveiling. It doesn't mean the confusing, it means the unveiling. And what is unveiled is Jesus in his glory. And we're gonna see part of that today. What is unveiled are the, the steps that are going to take place that are going to happen, the events about the second coming of Christ. And what is unveiled is the news that in the end, God wins. And when God wins, we win. And that is the unveiling of the book of Revelation. If you think about it, when Jesus came, the first time, he came veiled. He was veiled in flesh and blood. The world didn't recognize it. They didn't understand who he was. That is what John says. The, the writer of the book of Revelation is the apostle John, but he is also the writer of the gospel of John. And notice what he says in John chapter one and verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, meaning Jesus. Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came unto his own, and his own didn't know who he was. He was veiled in flesh and blood. And in fact, Paul even says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 8, that if the world would have known this was the Son of God, if the world would have known this was God in flesh, they wouldn't have crucified him. So why didn't Jesus come in all of his glory and, and, all, and reveal who he was? Because he came to be crucified. He came to die on the cross. He came to give his life as an atonement for our sin. No, he came and did exactly the plan of God. But if you think about it, there was a moment in his ministry, do you remember, in which he unveiled. Remember that time that is called the Mount of Transfiguration? He didn't take all the apostles up on that mountain. He only took three. It was James and John and Peter, and they went up on that mountain, and there, to their shock, Jesus was transformed into the glorified Jesus Christ. And they were floored, they were shocked, and right there beside him was Moses and Elijah, and it was an amazing moment. One day when you and I see Jesus Christ, we're not gonna see a meek and mild son of man, a human being, we're going to see Jesus in all of his glory. And this morning in Revelation chapter one, it unveils that glorified Jesus. And we're gonna have the opportunity to see him in his glory. But before we do, what I wanna do is spend a few moments sort of setting the stage. If there is anything in the world that is complicated and difficult, it is the, the teaching about the second coming of Christ. So I wanna sort of uh, set the stage of the direction that we're headed. 
in 2004, oh, there, there is a first point I want to make, and it's simply this, don't be afraid. The first point I want to make in this series is this, don't be afraid, for God has a plan for the future of the world. In 2004 in Sri, Sri Lanka, there was a tsunami that hit that country. Sri Lanka is a small island, a country island that is in the Indian Sea just south of India. And there was a tsunami that swept in and it was amazing the destruction it brought. 40,000 people were killed in that tsunami. And there were thousands and thousands of houses that were just wiped out off the face of the earth. It was a horrible, terrible thing. But did you know that after they, they had dug through everything and after they were sort of piecing everything together, they discovered something that was a real shocker to scientists. There are all these reserves, these wildlife reserves that go right up to the coastline and they were part of what was hit by that tsunami. But they discovered very few animals died. Very few of the, of the wildlife that was in those reserves died because what they discovered is just before the tsunami hit, almost all of the wildlife went in, went up to a higher level or went deeper inland. How in the world did they, how did they know? And the, all that the scientists could come up with is that there was some sense of a instinct, a God-given instinct in this wildlife that, that said, uh, there is something coming, we, we've got to go higher up, we've got to go further inland. What God is wanting to do is build within our hearts, those people that love the Lord, those who are Christ followers, a sense of an instinct that when things begin to fall apart around us, in the government, in the world, and it seems like everything is a mess, instead of Christ followers falling apart like everybody else, there is this sense, this instinct that God is actually behind the scenes, that God is actually accomplishing his plan. If there's any group of people in the midst of disaster and the midst of struggle and difficulty that unfolds in front of us, and that is right now, if there is anybody that should grab hold of the moment God is at work, God is behind the scenes, God is moving according to his plan, it ought to be us. The sense of my God is in charge of the universe. He's in charge of the world and God is moving in his plan. Listen to what the Bible, how the Bible puts it in Ephesians chapter one, verse nine and 10. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is his plan at the right time. He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. The world's not out of control. God has control. It might look like it. It might look how all messed up, but God is moving in his plan. So when is it going to be? Well, he says at the right time and at the end. And that's why we're talking about this series, the beginning of the end. We're setting the stage for what God tells us is about to happen. 
Now, when I'm talking about the second coming, I just want you to know that I tend to, to deal with the second coming through the eyes of a premillennial view. And the reason I do is because I feel like that view is more, uh, more straightforward with Scripture. But it's not the only view. And the premillennial view is a man-made theological construct. Stay with me here because I, I want to explain something that I think is important. Uh, we've got all kinds of man-made theological constructs. I'm talking about Arminianism and Calvinism and every other ism. Every one of them are, are created, all trying to pull Scripture together, trying to make sense of everything, and, and trying to lay out a theological perspective of what the Bible teaches. But all of them are man-made, and all of them have passages that they struggle with, passages that seem to go in a different direction. And the same is true about the premillennial view. It's a man-made theological construct, just like any other view of the second coming. So I guess what I'm trying to say is this, stay humble in your view. One day we're gonna get to heaven and we're gonna discover there were some things that we thought was this way that was that way. So stay humble in your perspectives. But I believe I take the premillennial view of understanding the second coming. So what is it? Well, the premillennial view of the end times is this. It teaches that Jesus will literally and physically come back to the earth. He will reign on the earth for a thousand years in a golden age of peace. That will happen in accordance, quite honestly, of several passages in the Old Testament, prophecies of the Old Testament, that is exactly what they're saying. And in the New Testament, it's exactly what they're saying. But it's not the only view that's out there. There was a view that doesn't exist anymore that was called post-millennialism. Now, mine is a pre-millennial view, but it was post-millennial, and this is what it said, that mankind is going to get better and better and better, and we will create this utopia on the face of the earth because of science, and when we have created this utopia, then Jesus will come back. Oh, you did such a great job, and now Jesus comes back. Nobody believes that anymore. All it took was World War I and World War II, and everybody realized all this science stuff, it's got a positive side and a negative side because who controls it is the heart of mankind, and the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Nobody believes in the post-millennial view anymore. There's another view, and that is called the ah-millennial view. The ah, it means non or no. The amillennial view means simply this, that there is no millennial reign of Christ on the earth. He's coming back, but he's not gonna reign on the earth for a thousand years. Even though there are all these passages in the Old Testament and New Testament that describes it, the amillennial view takes all of that as symbolic and figurative and not literal. Well, I've read the, I've read the perspective and I'm not convinced at all by it. So I'm just telling you, though it's godly people that, that believe that, I'm just telling you, I believe that the premillennial view is the correct view, and here's why. First of all, it's the most natural and literal way to read scripture. 
The Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah and Zechariah and Ezekiel and Daniel, along with with, uh, uh, others, spoke of an age to come in which there would be total peace on the earth. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The war will be abolished on the earth. The Lord will reign in Jerusalem. The Jewish saints of the Old Testament fully believed these prophecies were to be taken literally. And nothing has happened in human history that even gets close to what these passages of Scripture are talking about. It's something in the future. I think it does the best. The premillennial view does the best in just taking the Bible seriously and literally and letting the Bible say what it says. Second of all, Revelation chapter 20 also teaches a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth that would coincide with the Old Testament prophecies, and that position would have been consistent with the Jewish view of end times. Some people say, yeah, but the Jews missed the first coming of Christ, and that's true. You see, what they didn't understand is in the Old Testament, it was teaching about the two comings of Christ, the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. The first coming as the sacrificial lamb of the world, and that's the part they missed. They took Isaiah 53, and they just, they just symbolized it. They just pushed it away. They took literally the second coming and all the glory and what was going to happen, but they saw all the first coming of Christ as just symbolic and they made a desperate mistake. Jesus came back the first time to be the sacrificial lamb. He's coming back the second time as the glorious creator of the universe. And they were right about that part. Third of all, many of the earliest and most prominent Christian leaders in Christianity were premillennial. The apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation discipled three men, Polycarp, Papias, and Ignatius. Three guys. And from the writings and comments from them, it is evident that two of these three men, Polycarp and Papias, held the premillennial view of the second coming. Uh, we, we have the writings of Ignatius, but he never mentions the second coming, so we're not sure where he was coming from with that. That third, our, our Polycarp, also discipled a man named Irenaeus, who was one of the first great apologists and theologians of the second century, and he was an outspoken premillennialist. So what does that mean? Here's what I'm saying. If there's anybody that understood what the book of Revelation meant, it was John. And so if there's anybody that would have understood what it meant, it would be the disciples that John discipled. And those guys believed in the premillennial view of the second coming of Christ. There was another guy named Justin Martyr who was one of the great theologians of the second century, and he was an outspoken premillennialist. I don't know if you knew this, But did you know that we still have today the writings of people in second century, the end of the first century that weren't part of the Bible, and the second and third and fourth centuries? We have all their writings. They were called the writings of of the church fathers. I have all of those writings in a program on my computer, and I can research every one of them. And what was amazing is so many of them in the second century were premillennialist. Was that the only thing that was taught? No. There were also people in the second century who were good and godly men and women who were amillennialists. So here's what I want to say to you. 
There were two views of the second coming of the second century, and it seems as though they got along with each other. They didn't fight each other, they didn't tell each other off, they didn't say someone was a heretic and the other wasn't. They got along, they dealt with this, two different views of the second coming, and I'm just letting you know that both of them are there. I believe the pre-millennial view. So how does it work out? There are five key things that are going to happen in end times according to that view. The first is this, the world will grow progressively worse, not better. At God's select time, Christ followers will be raptured away. That word raptured means to be snatched away. It means that in a, a no notice at all, all of a sudden in the blinking of an eye, Jesus will show up and all of those who know Christ as Savior will be instantly changed and meet Jesus Christ in the air. And all of these Christians will suddenly disappear and the world will be thrilled. The world's gonna be very happy to get rid of all of us because as Jesus said, the world hates you because they hated me. So when you go through hard times and, and difficult times because the world doesn't love you, it just means you're following me and you're living the right kind of life. Well, in a moment's notice, Jesus will come and boom, we will be gone. Second of all, there will then be seven years of tribulation in which the world will see the emergence of a great world leader that the Bible calls the Antichrist. And while these seven years of tribulation are going on on the earth, Christians in heaven are going through our time of judgment. But as the Bible describes our time of judgment, it is a time that's wonderful. It is the time we're rewarded for our faithfulness. New believers will come to faith in Christ on earth during those seven years of tribulation. And at the end of the seven years, there's a third thing, Christ will return and he'll bring us with him. We're coming back. When Jesus comes back and his feet land on planet earth, we're coming back with him. And the Bible says we're coming back on horses. I would advise you to go take some riding lessons before you get to heaven. You don't want to fall off that horse when you're coming back with Christ. We'll come back with him. We, he will defeat the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon. And he'll set up the thousand year reign on this earth called the millennial reign of Christ. The fourth thing will happen is this, at the end of the thousand years, there will be a great white throne judgment where everyone who does not know Christ will be judged. It'll be a terrible time. Yea, God, that we will miss that moment. Then here is the fifth thing. There will be a new heaven and a new earth and time will be no more. Now this is what the book of Revelation lays out. And that's why I love this view. It takes seriously what the Bible lays out, literally and seriously, along the line of God's word. It is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was saying when Paul said, and then the end will come. 
When Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I wanted to give you this whole layout so you'll understand the direction we're going in the series. So now let's go to Revelation chapter one. This is the first point. Don't be confused, for God reveals to us the beginning of the end. Last night as I was looking over what I was going to be talking about and I was sort of putting it all back in my heart as I was getting ready to talk with you, I thought to myself, I wish I would have worded that differently. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever gotten some words out there you wish you could grab them back and I could, I could say it differently? Well, that was my thought last night. I got to give all these notes about Wednesday in and, and I thought later, oh, I wish I'd have said it differently. This is what I wish I would have said. I wish I would have written, don't give in to the distress of these days. Keep looking to God. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter one, verse one. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is happening to John when this takes place? John is the last living apostle. All the other apostles have been martyred. Only John wasn't. John is now, it's at the end of the first century. It is close to uh, 90 AD, 100 AD. John is around 90 years old himself. And he is the last living apostle. He is the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and the Roman Empire sees him as a threat. He is arrested. He is taken to the prison island of Patmos, P-A-T-M-O-S. It was sort of like first century Alcatraz. Nobody got off that island alive. They arrested him. They put him in prison on the island of Patmos. They figured this guy's 90 years old. He'll soon be dead. And there is John. He is going through all that a prisoner that would go through on that island. His hands are in chains. His feet are in chains. But notice what happens to him on that island. Revelation chapter one, verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Stop for just a moment and think with me. Here it is, it's Sunday morning. Here it is, the Lord's day. And he's in chains, but he's in the spirit. You can put chains on somebody's arms and legs, but you cannot change their spirit. That spirit of John was in worship with God. He was singing praises to the Lord. He was adoring Jesus Christ, just as we have done a few moments ago. And suddenly, it was as though the spirit of God hovered down. Jesus showed up. Jesus walked up 
to John in that moment. It was a shocking thing. It was an amazing vision that John got. And there he was in a moment in which you would think, downhearted, downtrodden, I mean, my life is coming to an end. I'll end up being martyred just like all the others. But in this moment of distress, God gave to John the greatest vision that he had ever received outside of the, second, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Suddenly here is Jesus that shows up and begins to lay out for John all that he wrote in the book of Revelation. I want you to stop for a moment and think about your life. I don't know what Patmos you're on. I don't know what your Patmos is today. I don't know what distress you're going through, what hurt and heartache you're facing. I don't know what difficulties and pressure that is coming against your life, but I'm telling you this, though pressure is coming, God is at, at work in your life. Keep your eyes on Jesus, because here is what he's going to do. He's gonna turn around what you're going through, and he's gonna make it a blessing in your life. Here is the truth, and John understood it. Hard times are inevitable, but misery is optional. You don't have to give in to the misery. You don't have to give in to what Satan is, is bringing against your life. If you'll step back, you will see a God in charge of not just this world, but of your life. You will see a God who is blessing you, a God that is anointing you with his spirit, a God that is working in your life. And he's about to take the most terrible things that you're experiencing now and turn them around for good. It might be a Patmos moment in your life, but I'm gonna tell you, God's gonna use it to bless your life. You gotta open your heart to it. Don't give in to the misery. Don't give in to the sadness and the hurt. Oh, woe is me. Open your heart to the work of God in your life. Listen to what he says in Revelation chapter one, verse three. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Did you know the book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that gives you a promise that says, if you will read this word and you will do what it tells you to do, God will bless your life. There's another thing that I want to say, and it's simply this. Don't be discouraged, for Jesus reveals his glory. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is Jesus. His feet, rather his, wait a minute. Someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the rush sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. 
Stop for a moment and see what is happening. When Jesus Christ, before he came, he was in his glory on the throne of God. But the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus laid down that glory. He took on flesh and blood and came to the earth. But when he resurrected and ascended back to heaven, he retook all of his glory. And now what John is seeing is this glorified Jesus Christ. Notice how he describes him. He says that his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. He is describing the sinless perfection of Jesus, his purity. Second of all, his eyes were like blazing fire. Do you see the picture? Last week when we were talking about the resurrection and we, I talked about what happened to Jesus. What, what was Jesus doing between the cross and his death and the resurrection three days later? And one of the things we talked about is that he went to Sheol in the Old Testament, hell. He went to hell and he walked in and declared his victory. And as I was giving the description, I described him as eyes of blazing fire. I got it right here from this passage. It is the ability to penetrate our heart and see what is true about us. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. It is a picture of a conquering king. And when those who have been conquered come into that throne room, they're not allowed to look at his face. They have to be on hands and knees, and all they can see is the feet of that conquering king. It is the symbol of his power, and that is what this is describing. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, he describes these seven stars. These are, he says, the messengers of the seven churches he's about to talk about in Revelation 2 and 3. The word messenger that he uses is the same word for angel. And there are some who say what he's talking about is that every church has an angel. And Jesus holds in his hands the seven angels of the seven churches. There are other uh, commentators who say, no, this is the lead pastor of those seven churches. I like the second interpretation better. The lead pastor in the hand of Jesus. What it does say is this, that this church, Sugar Creek Baptist Church, is safely held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. I want you to know that the leader of Sugar Creek is not Mark Hartman. The leader of Sugar Creek is Jesus Christ. That we are safely in his hands. That he has a purpose and a plan for this church. And he is the power behind this church. You watch. This church is going to rise up out of this pandemic stronger and more powerful than it was before it walked into this pandemic. Because Jesus is using these moments that we're going through to hone us down and to expand our reach and to touch the lives of people we wouldn't have touched otherwise. Sugar Creek Baptist Church has always been and still is in the very hand of Jesus Christ.
His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. You put all that together and all I can say is wow. One day when you and I stand before Jesus Christ, this is the picture. This is the glory of Jesus that we will see. Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. What is amazing to me is that John was with him, Jesus, day and night for three and a half years. But when he saw the glorified Jesus Christ, he was stunned in awe. One day, every person that has ever lived will stand before this Jesus Christ in all of his glory. Philippians chapter two, verse nine puts it this way. Therefore, God has exalted Christ to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This last week, I was listening to a comedian and all of a sudden, he started going into stories that were mocking Jesus Christ. I could hardly believe it. And I could hear in the background people laughing at the stories. I turned the channel. I was so humiliated. But the verse that came to mind was this verse. One day, that guy, all of us, will stand before Jesus Christ and our knee will bow and our tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There was John in awe of the sight of Jesus and notice what Jesus does in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 and 18. Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Do you know him? Have you given your heart to Jesus Christ? Do you know the God who made you? This God of glory, this Jesus Christ who has been glorified in heaven that one day you will stand before, one day you will bow your knee before, one day you'll confess he is, he is the Lord of, of hosts. Have you given your heart to him? Have you accepted Jesus in your heart? If you haven't, you can today. I'm hoping online as you're listening to this message today that you will take a look inside your heart. Have you given your heart to Christ? Have you accepted him as your savior? You can today. In just a moment after I pray, there is an online Next Step Center. You can talk to one of our ministers. How can I know this Jesus Christ? How can I give my heart to Christ this morning? Would you make that decision? Would you turn your heart to him? I'm hoping that there's some in person on all three campuses that are listening to me right now. And there is a sense in your heart, I need him, I want him. And in just a few moments, when this service is over, you can go to a physical next step center and talk to one of our ministers. How can I know Jesus? I want to give my heart to him. But there's something else I'm hoping will happen. In, in, inside, we will look in our heart. How am I living? 
I'm going to meet this Jesus. And when I do, I don't want to be ashamed with my life. When I meet him, I want to hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, as I stand before this holy one. What is God saying inside your heart? Are you living for him? Are you walking with him? Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we come to you today. As we begin this series of the second coming, we, we start understanding where it's headed and what you have told us about this amazing thing that is about to take place. As we're watching the world now resembling exactly what Jesus said it would just before he comes back. Oh God, I, you, I pray you would use this, this series and this moment in my life and our lives that we would look inside. How am I living? What am I doing? How am I walking with Jesus Christ? Father, may it be a time that many would come to Christ. May it be a time that many would recommit our hearts by faith to you. Oh God, I want to be found faithful when I see you. Move in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.